1988, Jonathan Barron and John Hershey do a really interesting experiment. They round up a bunch of undergrads and they give them descriptions of medical cases where they talk about a patient, the patient's background, the symptoms they're experiencing, and how the doctor chooses to treat these symptoms. All the descriptions are exactly the same. Same patient, same doctor, same decision-making process with one small difference. At the end of half of the descriptions, they say the surgery was a success. The treatment worked. On the other half of the descriptions, they say the treatment failed. Then the students were asked to rate the quality of the decision and the competence of the doctor. Now, from our vantage point, you would think that the the ratings, the scores would be kind of the same because it's the same doctor, the same decision, the same situation. But that wasn't the case. The students that read that the treatment was a success rate that decision higher and the competence of the doctor higher. And when the treatment didn't work, they rate the decision quality lower and the competence of the doctor lower. This is an example of what researchers call the outcome bias. And it might not seem like a big deal yet, but my goal this episode is to show you why it's actually a massive deal and plays a huge role in the way we make decisions, the way we learn, and the way we lead. Welcome to the Learner Lab Podcast. I'm Trevor Reagan, and each episode, we dig into one topic that can help you and your team get better at getting better. Today, we're going to talk about the outcome bias, and we have two fantastic guests. My, uh, my name is Ovo Cesar. I'm an assistant professor of management and organizations at Cornell University at the business school here. Hi, I'm Annie Duke. You might have heard Annie's name before. Annie Duke is a former professional poker player turned best-selling author. She spent years coaching and consulting businesses and leaders on how to make better decisions. Now, through the interview, she uses the term resulting a lot. Resulting is what a lot of poker players call the outcome bias. So when she says resulting, it kind of means the same thing as outcome bias. These two are kind of like the, the ultimate combo of guests. We have the expert researcher, Oval, and we have the expert practitioner, Annie. And together, they're going to take us through these three big categories. What is the outcome bias? Why does it matter to people like you and I? And what are some different strategies we can use to minimize it? Outcome bias, uh, in a nutshell, means that even though sometimes outcomes do not provide any, any additional information about the decision quality, we take it as a proxy for decision quality. And, um, and sometimes, again, outcomes can reflect some information about the environment, but oftentimes they do not provide any more additional information, yet we still pay way more attention to uh, outcomes. The outcome bias is this trap that we all fall into where we put too much stock and too much weight into an outcome. Like that's what happened in the original study. They overweighted the outcome. Even though everything was equal, same information, same decision made by the doctor, when the outcome was a success, well, the people rated that higher. When the outcome was a failure, they rated it lower. So in a way, the undergrads were swayed by the outcome, and that changed their judgment of the process itself. It's like you hire someone, they don't work out, you think you made a bad choice. You hire someone and they're great, you think you made a great choice, right? Like a ball's intercepted. And you think it was a bad play call, you know, a ball's caught for a touchdown and you think it was a great play call, 
right? Like, so, I mean, this is happening all the time uh, and it actually really interferes with your ability to learn. If we lived in a world where outcomes were a direct reflection of the process, this would be fine. So good outcome equals good process, bad outcome equals bad process. We could learn so much from an outcome, but that's obviously not how life works. Life is more like poker than chess. So let's say that I told you that there were two people, Morgan and Taylor, and Morgan and Taylor played a game of chess, but you have seen not a single move. So you didn't watch the game. All I tell you is the result. And the result is that Morgan won. So in chess, off of one game, I can say Morgan in that game made better decisions. So in chess, we see all the pieces. So there's no hidden information and there's really no luck at play. So we can actually gain a lot of information from an outcome. If someone wins, it's most likely because they played better and made better decisions. The outcome is closely tied to the quality of the process. Now, if these two played poker, things work a little differently. In poker, it's really hard to say, right? Because like maybe... Maybe Morgan was really beating Taylor and then Taylor put, you know, their money in the pot with a 20% chance to win or something and then ended up hitting their card. Now, if you told me that they had played 1500 hours of poker against each other and Morgan had triumphed, I certainly know something, but I don't know something after an hour. In poker, there's hidden information. You don't see the other people's cards, but there's a lot more luck at play. It's like, even though you made the right decision, you could still lose. And so if we're looking at one result in a poker hand or even just one hour of play, you can't gain that much information from the outcome because there's more noise and luck involved. And so this really reveals what the difference is between chess and poker. And it's really important to sort of think about this in your own decision-making. In a scenario where there's no luck, no uncertainty, no hidden information, this one-to-one comparison of good outcome equals good process, bad outcome equals bad process, that's fine. But as soon as there's luck, uncertainty, chaos, and hidden information, as soon as life becomes more like poker, we need to be really careful about making this one-to-one comparison. Because you know just as well as I do, we can make a good decision. We can go through a good process and achieve a bad outcome. We can have kind of a bad process and make bad decisions and get lucky and achieve a good outcome. So when it comes to our learning and our decision making, we need to be able to take a step back and understand, okay, we can gain some information from how a scenario played out, the good or bad outcomes, but there's much more to the story than we realize. So... Like if I had to think about what is the single biggest thing that hurts our capacity to grow, it would actually be resulting. And why is that? Well, how do we learn? We learn from experience, right? That's simple, like not controversial. So in order to learn though, you have to close those feedback loops well, right? Like you have to actually learn, you have to take the right lessons from experience. You have to say, here's my experience. Let me go back and loop that back and think about the decisions that I made or the actions that I took, which are decisions. Um, you know, that led that then, you know, sort of put me on the path to this outcome. And then let me figure out what would I change? What what would I not change? And this is how we do it. We close these feedback loops. So now let's think about why resulting is so bad, because it makes you close those feedback loops in a bad way. So this becomes really a, a huge problem for learning, 
Because what resulting does is it causes us to take the wrong lessons from history, basically. What if I went through a green light, someone came through the intersection, T-boned me, this has nothing to do with me, and I was like, I better not go through green lights again. That was a terrible decision, right? And now suddenly I start going through red lights. Well, that's essentially what resulting causes you to do, which is normally we can't spot it because things generally aren't as clear as like red light, green light kind of situations. They're murkier, like hiring situations. Not only does the outcome bias affect the way we judge ourselves in the past, like our decisions, our process, but it also affects kind of the way we move into the future and how we approach new situations. I found a cool study by Rebecca Ratner. They round up 91 students and say, okay, you have $5,000 that you need to invest and you have two choices. Option A has a 54% chance of working. Option B has a 43% chance of working. Which one do you think they picked? Yes, almost all the students do the right thing. They choose option A. Of course they will. That has a better chance of working than option B. Then after a while, they come back to the students and give them the news, the results. For half the students, they say, hey, congratulations. Your investment was a success. It worked. For the other half of the students, they say, sorry, your investment did not work. It was a failure. And then they run the scenario again. They give them the same choice, A or B. For the students that failed investment number one, 23% of them choose to change their strategy and invest in option B, which is really foolish. Like Obviously, B is a worse choice than A. 54% is better than 43%, no matter what happened. But you see, they're being swayed by the negative outcome. Their original investment didn't work because of bad luck. But they're letting that bad outcome and bad luck sway their decision-making process, and they're literally choosing to do something that gives them a worse chance of success. Now, I know this seems kind of ridiculous, but this is happening in the real world all the time. Catherine Tinsley did an analysis of people who experience hurricanes. And we are currently in an ongoing disaster. The, the winds here are gusting hurricane force. We know where the storm is going. And what she found is if people are given an evacuation order, but then nothing kind of happens to them or their house, the next time they receive an evacuation, they're less likely to leave. In a way, they're doing kind of the same thing the students did in the experiment. But in this case, they're experiencing good luck, but again, taking the wrong lesson from it. We were told to evacuate. We didn't. Nothing happened. Good luck. And then they're letting that sway their decision-making process in the future. We didn't evacuate last time and everything was okay, which means we don't need to evacuate this time. So like Annie said, reflecting on an experience, that's like learning in a nutshell. That is learning. But when we fall into the trap of the outcome bias, we're sort of taking the wrong lesson from the experience. We're taking the lesson from luck. And whether the luck is good or bad, that's not a trusty source of information, especially when we're using that information to adjust our strategy moving forward. Now, the outcome bias is obviously something that we deal with as individuals, how we judge our decisions and adjust our strategies moving forward. But this is also something that we do to others, especially when we're in leadership roles. We need to be aware of the outcome bias. Someone who is in a leader position or a manager position is obviously 
uh, in a position to evaluate other people a lot. In our uh, paper that we published, we particularly looked at whether our evaluation of someone, uh, what what's the problem when that's solely based on outcome? It's really easy as someone in a leadership role to be a resulter, right? So when things work out well, they're like, you know, oh, you're going to get a promotion. We'll give you a raise, pats on the back. It's all, all amazing. And when things work out poorly, they get dinged for it. Even though the decision-making may have been great, even though the person who had the good outcome might have actually made poor decisions leading up to it, and the person who had the bad outcome might have had great decisions. So this is a thing that we end up doing as leaders. A similar analysis was done by a group from Australia that looked at European soccer. They decided to look at a special occurrence that happens sometimes in a game where a player shoots the ball and it hits the post. Alonso. He was invited to shoot off the ball. And they found 13,000 times that this happened. They decided to analyze this because of how small of a margin this is. So sometimes you can hit the post and the ball goes in the goal. Other times you can hit the post and you miss. But that margin is so tiny that the researchers actually show it's pure luck. Like whether you hit the post and make it, hit the post and miss is all about luck. So there's really no difference between hitting the post and making it and hitting the post and missing it. There's no difference in the quality of the shot. Obviously, there's a difference in the outcome itself. So what do they find? When a player hits the post and makes it, they are rewarded significantly more playing time the next game. They're also rated higher by third-party journalists compared to the player that hits the post and misses. The name of this paper is great. They call it Fooled by Performance Randomness Over Rewarding Luck. There's no significant difference between hitting the post and making it, hitting the post and missing it, but we're over rewarding the lucky players and in a way over punishing the unlucky players. If professional coaches are sort of tricked by the outcome or overly influenced by lucky outcomes, of course, this is something that that you and I deal with as well. This also kind of impacts the signals and values that we're sending to the people that we lead. But let's think about it from the employee's perspective. Okay, so you have have a direct report and how are they now going to behave? Well, they're going to say, I know they say they're not worried about the outcome, but they are. And I know that because I'm only in a room when I have a bad one. That is the only time that I end up in a room. Okay. So if that's the case, let's think about this. What are they going to do? They're going to try, they're going to try to avoid the room. Okay. So, right. Okay. So how can they do, how can they avoid this horrible situation of being in the room when there's a bad outcome? There's two ways for them to do it neither of which is good for your team. Way number one is um, basically to never make a decision that can lose very much. Make it so you can't lose. And you can make it so you can't lose by under-promising. You can make it so you can't lose by just choosing things that can't ever win a whole bunch because they also can't win, they can't lose very much. The other thing that you can do to defend yourself in the room is this one. Well, it's the status quo. Everybody agreed. We had consensus. Those kinds of things, right? Because then that gets the responsibility off of you. But from your the standpoint of your team, that's horrible because what does that mean? Nobody ever innovates. 
right? Because if you go, it's the status quo. It's the way things have always been done. By definition, it means you're not doing something new. If you if you say everybody agreed, by definition, you're kind of not doing something new because the whole point with innovation is that you're doing something that people don't agree on yet. So it creates all this really bad behavior. That's separate apart from the fact that you're you're not learning the right lessons from your outcomes anyway. So you have to get away from that in order to really actually free your team up to be able to do this stuff better. This even affects the way we talk about teams and organizations as a whole. When a team is winning, their coach is brilliant, their players get along, they have great leadership and great strategy and run the right plays at the right time. When they're losing, their coach is terrible, they run the wrong plays, the players don't get along. Yet so many times in sports, nothing changes. It's the same coach, the same players running the same stuff, but the variance, the luck, the wins, the losses affect our judgment of the team. Okay, we have a good idea of what the outcome bias is, and we see the different ways that it can impact us. The final piece of the puzzle is, okay, how can we work to minimize the outcome bias? Like, think about it in poker, right? Let's say that 100 times out of 100, I'm going to blame it on luck, but then I really work hard, right? And I only do it 90 times out of 100. I just got 10 extra learning opportunities. Like, I'm pretty excited. Like, I'll, I'll take it. I'll take it. So there's two things you can do. One, one is easier and one is harder. So I'll go with the harder one first. So uh, let's say that you didn't do any work up front. You get a result and you're trying to figure, you're now looking back and you're trying to figure out was a good, what is it, you know, a good decision or not. So, but we haven't done the work in advance. There is something you can do in that case, which is essentially to go through this process where, where you say, well, what did I know before I made the decision? So this is a really important question. What did I know before I made the decision? What information revealed itself to it uh, me after the fact? Then when you say, okay, there's information that revealed itself to me after the fact, was it possible for me to know that beforehand? Okay, so that's now the next piece of the question. So once you've sort of gone through that process, again, what did I know beforehand? What did I find out after the fact? Could I have known that beforehand? right? When the answer to all those questions are no, you shrug your shoulders. When the answer to one of those questions is yes, then you say, not beating yourself up about the past, but you say, how could I include that going forward? So, okay, so that's the first way that you can sort of handle this resulting problem. Now, the second way you can handle the resulting problem is do the work up front, because notice I'm asking you to reconstruct a lot of stuff. And the main thing I'm asking you to reconstruct is what did you know beforehand? So what I always suggest to people is instead of reconstructing it, you should really be clear about what did I know beforehand? So when you're going into a decision, you should say, what are the options I'm considering? What are the goals that I have? What am I willing to pay in order to be able to achieve those goals, pay in time or effort or money or whatever? Uh, what do I think the possible outcomes of these you know, options are? What do I think the chances of those occurring? You know, these are all kind of subjective judgments that you're making. Some of them are going to be facts and data. And we should just be doing more things like that in our decision-making life. The reason I was so excited to land the interview with Oval is a lot of her work is on different strategies that we can implement to minimize the outcome bias. In the paper that we're going to link below, she talks about the importance of separating out our evaluations rather than doing them jointly. You can read more about that strategy in the paper. 
For our conversation today, we're going to focus on a different approach that's kind of more general. One way that we tried to solve this uh, issue was we tried to make intentions very salient. Now, the thing is, intentions can be salient, but only in the absence of outcome information, right? Because the moment we know the outcome, we sort of forget everything before, everything that comes before it. Procedure, the information, whether someone really uh, works so hard or all of that, we sort of discount that information because outcome information has such strong weight and power for our brains. Uh, so one way to make uh, intention salient is actually create these multiple decision points, multiple evaluation points. So the only way that we could make outcome bias a little uh, less stronger and less uh, prominent was after the procedure, we gave managers a chance to evaluate. So without knowing any outcome, uh, but once, once the procedure and decision-making process is done, they evaluate the person and they evaluate that decision-maker. Uh, and of course, there, they pay attention to intentions and the procedure and what happened before, because the outcome information is not revealed yet. Uh, but what happens is if they do it one time, if they make that evaluation at time one without knowing the outcome information, at time two, even if they get the outcome information, even if they now know what happened, whether it's negative or positive, now the power of this outcome information is not uh, as strong as uh, you know if you if you never gave them a chance to make that evaluation. So if we create sort of multiple evaluation points uh, for the people we evaluate, or for uh, it doesn't have to be just a person, but whatever we are evaluating, whatever um, we are. Uh, trying to understand whether it was a good procedure, good decision-making process. If we at least create two decision evaluation points, um, then it would really help us. We can use a similar strategy when we're asking people for feedback. So many times when we're asking people for feedback, we tell them the outcome and then we get into the process and our decisions. It's best if we hide the outcome and only talk about the process. So like uh, an example would be a poker hand. If I go, I lost this hand. Here's how I played it. Well, your feedback is going to be biased towards the outcome because you know what happened. But what if I go, here's how I played this hand. Here's the bets that I made. Here's the cards that I had. Now you're giving me feedback on that process itself. And then at the end, I could be like, yeah, and I ended up losing or winning. So we can learn to hide the outcomes, especially when we're asking someone else for feedback. Another kind of simple strategy is simply increase our sample size. Like if we do one thing one time and achieve one outcome, there's only so much we can learn from that. Now, if we go through this process a bunch of times and we're seeing similar outcomes over the long haul, now there is more information that we can gain from those outcomes and the process that led to them. But I guess the question that we need to remind ourselves is that what does the outcome tell us? Does it show us really anything about the quality of decision-making, the procedure, the fairness, uh, or the, you know, the wisdom, about, wisdom of the decision-maker? Or does it really reflect some sort of noise in the environment? Is there some randomness in this environment? Is there some panic or emotions in this environment? Again, I'm thinking of financial decision-making. I'm thinking of... Um, so I guess, I guess we need to also try to stop and ask ourselves, what does this outcome reflect? Uh, if it reflects some sort of noise in the environment, 
then I think it's still much better to pay attention to other ingredients as well. Uh, but if it really reflects the decision quality uh, and the procedural quality behind the decision, then it's not necessarily the bad thing to pay attention to either. For me, this topic ticks all the boxes. It's something that we usually don't think about or know about, but it has a bigger impact on our decision-making and learning than we realize. It's something that once we understand what it is and how to minimize it, it can help us become better leaders and better learners. I'd like to give a huge shout out to Oval and Annie for the fantastic interviews and their fantastic work. We'll put some links to their resources below. You can visit our website, thelearnerlab.com, anytime for free resources that can help you and your team become better learners. Thank you so much for learning with us today. We'll be back next week with another episode.